we have an amazing treat this morning. As you and I have been talking about, um, we finished our Life of Faith series. We've been talking about being on mission with God. God is a God who's on mission, and we're on mission with God. And today, following that same kind of spirit and stream, we have with us Don Richardson, author of Peace Child, Lord of the Earth, Eternity in Their Hearts, and Secrets of the Quran. He's been studying the Muslim world for over 30 years. He and his wife, Carol, spent 15 years among the, the Sawi tribe, which is a Stone Age cannibalistic headhunter tribe. Okay, I just said cannibalistic headhunter from the pulpit, all right? Only one of, I believe, four tribes that in the world that can be named this, a cannibalistic headhunter tribe in Dutch New Guinea. Don designed an alphabet suited to the Sawi language, authored 19 primers, taught the tribesmen to read in their native tongue, and translated the entire New Testament in their language. More than half of the Sawi tribe accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, this was a cannibalistic headhunter tribe, okay? Since 1977, Don has served as an ambassador at, at Large for World Team, a mission organization. Don holds an honorary doctorate of literature from Biola and is an ordained pastor and speaks to more than 40 church conferences each year. He's with us today, and it's going to be awesome. It was so good for service. Everybody welcome Don Richardson. Thank you, David. Thank you all for welcoming me and my wife, Carol. Rise, honey. There she is. Well, you've just heard me introduced as a guest. And this guest begins his message drawing your attention to the greatest introduction in history. And it's found in this book. An introduction more important than the introduction of a president, a king, a head of state. The introduction of Jesus as the Messiah among the Jewish people about 2,000 years ago. Who was privileged to make that most important ever introduction? A man named John the Baptist. Now, some people are very skilled at making introductions. When they introduce someone to you, you become intrigued to get to know the person introduced. Others are just a little flat in how they do introductions. Pastor Dave, you did just fine. (laughs) But I heard of a man introducing a visiting speaker somewhere years ago. Apparently he thought he was obligated to pay the visiting speaker every possible compliment he could dredge. He rambled on and on, adding compliment to compliment for several minutes. At last the visiting speaker got to speak. He began by saying, may God forgive our brother for his exaggerations, and may he forgive me for enjoying them. (laughs) But John the Baptist did not ramble in making history's most important introduction. For that introduction, John used what must surely be regarded as the most meaningful metaphor ever used in any language. Pointing to Jesus of Nazareth that day, John the Baptist said, Look, the Lamb of God, who does what? Say it with me. Who takes away the sin of the world. That expression, Lamb of God, was a very meaningful metaphor, especially within the cultural context of the Jewish people at that time, because for centuries they'd been offering animal sacrifice, sacrificing oxen, goats, sheep, even doves, To illustrate the need of an atonement whereby an infinitely holy God could truly forgive really guilty people without compromising his own personal holiness in the act of forgiving the guilty. An atonement made that possible. And the atonement was illustrated by animal sacrifice. The blood of those animals didn't really atone for anyone's sin. We learn in the epistle to the Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats does not put away sin. But that does not mean those animals were sacrificed in vain because another purpose was fulfilled. That was a kind of cultural compass designed to point forward in time to Jesus, the one who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world just as physical compasses point to only one place, magnetic north. 
There's another kind of compass that God has designed to point not to one place but to one person. And that one and only one person is Jesus, the most magnetic personality in the universe. Do you feel his magnetism drawing you? Well, that's one example of an Old Testament cultural compass. My first text, that was John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if you have your Bible open to John chapter 1, turn another page. Now you're in John chapter 3. Please notice what our Lord said to a teacher of the Jewish law named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 14. Jesus said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Thus our Lord identified that event from the Exodus account as foreshadowing him lifted up on the cross. That's two examples. Turn in two more pages in the Gospel of John. I'm guessing you're in John chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 28. There Jesus made reference to the provision of the manna for the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. And on that basis said, Moses gave you not the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus declared what no other man in all of human history could possibly say without being considered insane. He said that he is that bread of life. As you read on through the New Testament, you will find ever so many more examples of Old Testament cultural compasses identified as anticipating one aspect of, or another of redemption later to be provided for mankind through our Lord. Especially in the epistle of the Hebrews, you'll find the writer takes care to make sure we understand features of the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness and later of the temple in Jerusalem, aspects of the priesthood and of the sacrifices themselves were all foreshadowing one aspect or another of redemption provided by Jesus. All right. I'm sure you'll agree it was good of God to give the Jewish people all their special foreshadowings of him. Do you agree? Now I invite you to ponder a major question with me. Are you ready for a major question? You are? Good. Here it is. What about the rest of the human race? Did God take care to give only one small percentage of mankind foreshadowings of the Messiah and leave the rest of the human race without that providence? Down through the centuries, those of us have been trained to be frontier crossers with the gospel, encouraged to go out into regions of the world where the message had never been proclaimed, to learn languages in which it had never been expressed, have not been encouraged by our instructors to expect to find what could be called Gentile cultural compasses waiting out there on the other side of those frontiers to help us fulfill our mission. Apparently, our instructors just didn't think God went to that much trouble. He gave only the Jewish people all those special foreshadowings, left the rest of mankind without that mercy in spite of the fact that our instructors didn't think God had seeded the cultures of mankind in this special redemption foreshadowing way, guess what we frontier crossers have been finding and using down through the centuries? Gentile cultural compasses, they're out there on the other side of those frontiers. We've been finding them and loosening little arrows on their dials so that those compasses could also point men and women to Jesus in poignantly meaningful ways. And often when we came back home on a furlough, we frontier crossers didn't even bother to tell our instructors about the amazing things we found out there. I guess we thought it might confuse them, might not fit into their systematic theology. So we've tended to leave them in the dark. I ask you, would you like me to share some secrets with you from the other side of those frontiers this morning? You really want me to? You do? I just love it when people really want me to tell them what I really want to tell them. All right, you asked for it. I'm going to invite you to travel back in time with me. Are you willing? Good. Fasten your seatbelts. On the count of three. One, two, three. It's 1807. Where are we standing? Look, we're on by the docks. 
it's a port city of China. Here's a ship flying a British flag. It's docking. Who's this one man disembarking? Robert Morrison. Why is Robert Morrison setting foot in China in 1807? Oh, I see. He's here to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world's most populous nation. There hasn't been any witness for Jesus in China since the 700s when the Nestorian Christians tried preaching in China and after a while gave up and no one succeeded them. So from the 700s till 1807, no witness for Jesus in China. Here's one man, just one man, who's going to try to make up for all those centuries of lost time. What chance does he have to establish a significant foothold for the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ in China? after such a long time with no witness. Look at the expression on his face. I think he's coming into contact with reality. He's found out there are already four other ancient religions on the scene in China. They have centuries of head start on him. One is Buddhism, a second is Taoism, a third is Confucianism, and in some areas of China, even Islam is already entrenched. He's up against it. He's got a difficult assignment. And now he's just realized it's even more difficult than he thought it would be. He's finding out the ancestors of the Chinese about 4,000 years earlier did not sit down and invent a phonetic alphabet of 26 or so symbols like our A to Z. They wanted something more complex, and they got it. They invented a writing system that utilizes 214 little pictures called radicals, get combined in complex ways to make Chinese words. Robert Morrison takes one look at Chinese writing, shakes his head in dismay, and sighs. It looks like chicken tracks in the mud. How can anyone learn to read something so utterly complex? He was probably tempted to complain just a little bit to God, saying, where were you, Lord, when they invented this? Couldn't you have exercised just a little more sovereignty? <laughs> Caused him to come up with something simpler than this. <clears throat> but he had no choice. He had to master it. Robert found a Chinese man who had some knowledge of English and was willing to use his rather minimal knowledge of English to help Robert Morrison crack the code of Chinese grammar and amass Chinese vocabulary. Sitting down with his <coughs> language helper one morning, he gave the man his pen and said, please, show me how you write the word that means righteous in your language. Chinese man went swish, 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 swish on a piece of paper and showed Robert the written form of that word. He was in for a surprise. The man had drawn two of the 214 little options, placing one over the other. The lower symbol was the Chinese symbol for the first person singular pronoun, I. Above that, he had drawn the Chinese symbol for a lamb. Robert realized when the Chinese write that word, they're actually writing the lamb over me, righteous. I under the lamb, righteous. The same metaphor John the Baptist used to introduce Jesus among the Jews was there in the Chinese writing system and had been for 40 centuries. Robert asked his Chinese language helper, sir, do you know where is the lamb? Pointing to the upper part, what the man himself had just drawn, under whom you and I must be found to be righteous in the sight of Shanti, the Lord of heaven. Chinese man said, no, I don't know where that lamb is. How about you, foreigner, do you know? Enabling Robert Morrison to say to him, oh, do I have good news for you and your people. And Robert said to himself, if there's one spiritually significant encoded message in this ancient writing system, there may be others I must press on with my study, see what else is awaiting recognition here. And day after day, he began to discover dozens and eventually 120 Chinese words that had spiritually significant messages encoded according to how the Chinese ancestors decided to combine little pictures to make words. One was the Chinese symbol for a ship. Requires you to draw something resembling the shape of the hull of a ship, but it doesn't mean ship until you specify further information. You must indicate the precise number of people that are sailing in the ship. Write any other number than the one I'm about to mention. You will lose one mark in a Chinese language exam. And that number is not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, or 10. Which one did I leave out? Eight people sailing in the ship. I wonder why the ancestors of the Chinese 40 centuries earlier thought that eight people sailing in a ship was an appropriate number. According to Genesis, what was the first ship that ever floated? How many people were delivered from the flood in it? Ocho personas, eight people sailing in a ship. 
And the Chinese word for covet, desiring something that doesn't belong to you, requires you to draw two trees and a woman standing between the two trees making a choice. What could that possibly have to do with coveting? Hmm. And the Chinese word for come, just the verb come, is more complex. <clears throat> to begin, you draw the symbol for a tree at the center, and it's a tree shaped like a cross. The Chinese symbol for a man is the letter Y upside down. Guess what? It's superimposed right over the center of the cross-shaped tree, an upside-down Y, a man suspended on a tree. Another part of it means mankind, <clears throat> and the meaning of this combination of symbols is the verb come. Another part of it, mankind, so it reads like an encoded message, mankind come to the man who hung on a tree. Robert Morrison said, Lord, I take it back, I think your sovereignty was manifested. He went on to find he had 120 uniquely Chinese cultural compasses waiting to have the little arrows loosen on their dials in the context of the teaching of the gospel of Jesus. There were, of course, those who opposed him, calling him a foreign devil. But Chinese people that did pay heed to Robert Morrison were disarmed. They began to say, how can we dismiss this man as a foreign devil? Look what he's doing. He is showing us that somehow our own ancestors anticipated the teaching would bring to us in this marvelous book. He went on, by the way, to translate the entire Bible into Chinese. He wrote letters to his supporting churches back in England, letters that took about six months to get there, six months for an answer to come back. Email was not invented yet. And as his letters were being read in front of congregations of Christians in England, people were amazed. They began to say, that's incredible what's happening out there in China. Who was that fellow we sent out there? Robert Morris, never heard of him. By the way, how many others did we send out there with him? And the elders who commissioned him to go to China said, well, actually, we sent only him. And they sheepishly added, we almost weren't persuaded it would be worthwhile to do that. But he kind of insisted. We said, okay, let's give it a try. But they said, obviously, it was worthwhile. Then Christians began to say, are there any others willing to follow the trail he's blazed out there to China? If there are, let's commission them as well. And there were others willing to go. Some of those who followed Robert Forster to China became more famous than him. Seems a little unfair. Let me ask you, how many of you heard of Robert Morrison before I said his name in this service? Raise your hands handful. Next question. How many of you heard of Hudson Taylor and Maria? Oh, look at that. What about another man named Jonathan Goforth? Do you hear of him, anyone? A few. With a name like Goforth, how could Jonathan stay home? <laughs> These and eventually a few thousand others began to see fellowships of believers spreading across that great nation, putting down deeper and deeper roots until by 1949, there were estimated to be approximately one million Christians in China. What happened in China in 1949? The communists took control of China and began to impose an atheistic government upon a very religious nation. Millions of Chinese people were slaughtered because of religious beliefs, and that included an estimated half million Christians. Most of the pastors slain. All the Christian churches in com communist China confiscated by the communists and changed into communist warehouses. Christian schools changed into schools to teach communist atheism. And the communist government warned the surviving half million or so Christians, unless you abandon your commitment to Christianity, if you're a government employee or a teacher in any school, you'll be fired. You Christians can only be grave diggers or garbage collectors or tillers of the fields and the communes, nothing more. And your children cannot receive public education unless you, the parents, give up your Christian faith. Because of these impositions, it is estimated approximately 200,000 other professing Chinese Christians capitulated to the pressure of the communists and gave up. That left about 300,000 believers who were resolute in their faith and were determined to continue to be Christians, live or die. The communists knew they were there. They appointed a committee I heard about decades ago. The committee was assigned to meet in Beijing and find some way to discourage the faith of the remaining resolute Christians without the expense of imprisoning them. 
without the messiness of killing them and having to bury them. And the committee had a member who claimed to be an authority in Christianity. He said, I've studied Christianity and I know where it is weak. Share your wisdom with us, said the other members who had a loss to know what to do. That man reportedly said, Christianity is a religion that depends upon meetings. It's only as Christians meet together for mutual encouragement, sing hymns together, quote their scriptures together, and pray together that their faith is strengthened. So we have a very simple solution. We'll send out an order if a dozen Christians are found in one commune. We'll order that just one Christian or one nuclear family of Christians be left there. The others be scattered to other communes where there are no Christians. Then Christians will not be able to find other Christians to have their own secret Christian meetings with. And instead of Christian meetings in every commune, there will, of course, be obligatory attendance every morning, Christians included, to gather to hear the reading of the thoughts of Mao Zedong from the Little Red Book. Soon the teachings of Mao will replace the teachings of Jesus in the midst of all the communes, and Christians will begin to forget about Jesus and turn to communist doctrine. Thank you, said the other members. What an ingenious solution. We wouldn't have thought of that. So the order went out. And the communist government, completely at its own expense, became one of the most efficient missionary-sending organizations in 2,000 years of church history <laughs> as they scattered the Christians as thinly as possible throughout the entire commune system. And the Christians they scattered did indeed suffer from loneliness and heartache as dear friends, relatives were separated from each other, perhaps never to meet again in this world. But how did the thinly scattered Christians solve their loneliness problem? They began to befriend other Chinese people. These were men and women who radiated joy in spite of depressing circumstances. They were people of tenderness and compassion and trustworthiness. And Chinese people were drawn to them and wanted to know what it was that made them the way they were. And as a result, the number of Christians in China began to grow exponentially. That's not this kind of a rise on a graph. It's this kind. It is now believed the number of Christians in China resulting from the faithful witness of the 300,000 thinly scattered Christians from the early 1950s has led to a harvest of far more than 100 million people in China who love Jesus Christ and say so freely no matter what it costs them. And the number of Christians in China is believed to be growing at an average daily net gain of more than 30,000 new believers per day net gain. The average Christian in China is a frequently witnessing one. It's those who don't witness that stick out like the sore thumbs instead of the opposite. And even secular scholars are beginning to take note of what's happening in China. They write academic papers about what they call the Christianization of communist China. And the communists are scratching the noggin saying, somehow we made a mistake here. <laughs> there are so many Christians... They've just got to show them a little bit of goodwill. So they grudgingly begun to show a little bit of goodwill to the Christians by restoring some of the warehouses to them. The Christians gladly accept them back, refurbish them as the churches they originally were. So many believers and other curious people throng to attend those reopened churches in China, even though they have multiple services on a Sunday morning, as many as the government will let them have. They've had to establish a rule for some of the churches, a rule that says you are not permitted to attend this church two Sundays in a row. If you do, you'll be stealing standing room money from other people that need to hear the word of God. Elsewhere in the world, pastors are frequently heard to say, I didn't see you in church last Sunday. In China, some pastors are more likely to be heard saying, wait, didn't I see you in church last Sunday? <laughs> and you're heading that way, aren't you? They're telling you, you got to come at a certain time, you can't come other times. Well, that's kind of a good sign, I think. But they're already there in some of the churches in China. So... Is it very clear that God prepared the gospel not just for the Jews, for, but for China as well? Did he even prepare the scene in China for the proclamation of the gospel? He did that as well. All right, that little jaunt back in time didn't jar your bones too much, did it? Willing to go a little further back? Keep those seatbelts fastened. One, two, three. It's 1792. We're in Hindu North India. Parts of India have been Christians since the first century. Did you know that? There are churches in the extreme south of India that credit the Apostle Thomas with having planted them in the first century. And in the eastern extremity of India, there are several million tribal people, the Naga, the Mizo, and others, that became Christians in large numbers in the 
early 1800s, when messengers of the gospel finally got to them, they were phenomenally prepared to believe the gospel. There were cultural compasses there. But in the major part of India, Hinduism is the main religion, and William Carey and his wife Dorothy suffered pretty severe culture shock when they settled in Hindu India, hadn't been there very long, when they heard a woman screaming out on the street. William rushed out to see if she needed his help. She needed his help, but he couldn't help her. Her husband had just died, and relatives were binding her, dragging her to place her on the pile of firewood beside the body of her husband. She was about to be burned alive beside his body. This was a Hindu custom called sati. And it didn't matter if the widow was decades younger than her deceased husband or the mother of little children who needed her to mother them. If her husband died, she was obligated to show due respect for her husband by being consumed in flame beside his body. And often the woman protested she would be bound and dragged and burned alive. William complained to the British colonial authorities who had control of India at the time, saying, why haven't you made this cruel custom illegal? And they expressed total lack of concern. They said, our concern is to sustain the steady cash flow of profits for England. That's all that matters to us. And they even threatened William Carey with imprisonment if he preached against Hindu customs and made the people angry, so they refused to work for the colonial authorities. So William shared his problem with his fellow Britishers with some Danish friends of his in a Danish enclave on the coast of India called Serampur. And the Danes said, William, we can solve that problem for you. How can you solve my problem? They said, it's very simple. Great Britain and Denmark have a treaty. So we're going to make you a citizen of Denmark. William, we're going to give you a Danish passport. You go ahead and preach whatever you think you need to preach. And if the Brits come to arrest you, wave your Danish passport in their faces. It'll be a perfect shield. It worked. I hope God has somehow rewarded little Denmark for the encouragement its representatives in India gave to a beleaguered William Carey back in the 1790s. And as William wrote letters to supporting churches back in England, Christians became aware of things like sati, wrote letters of protest to the parliament. Gradually, the parliament became aware and eventually ordered the British colonial authorities to make water burning illegal. Radical Hindus resented that. They said, wait till we become independent from British rules. We'll make sati legal again. India did become independent in the 1940s, and radical Hindus have been pressuring the government ever since to make sati legal once more. Thus far, the government has not capitulated to them. It is still illegal. It still happens wherever there are no police, or the police have been bribed, or they just don't care. But you can be sure, tens of millions of women in the world's second most populous nation, or the extent of their lives to the goodness of God at last reaching India through William Carey in this special way. Pray that sati will never again be made legal. It's still illegal. So, what about cultural compasses in Hinduism? Didn't seem likely to William Carey and others who followed him to India. They could expect to find anything pointing to Jesus, the pure Lamb of God, in a cultural context that had, was so rife with idolatry. There are little, literally millions of deities in Hinduism, more than any one worshiper could worship probably in his entire life. And besides idolatry, the worship of the idols representing the many, many gods, there was also, besides widow burning, temple prostitution connected with the worship of some of the Hindu deities and the world's most massive system of racist apartheid. When I said apartheid, which nation came to your mind? South Africa. And there was racist apartheid in South Africa till it was abolished a few years ago, but the world has a double standard, justifiably opposing racist apartheid in South Africa, but overlooking, appeasing, condoning a massively greater system of Racist apartheid in Hindu North India. Why? Why is it racist? Because the original inhabitants of India were the Dravidian race. Later, the Aryan race invaded from the north, and the Aryan conquerors set themselves up as high caste Hindus, relegating the Dravidian population to be the low caste, and the lowest of the low caste are called Dalits. That means untouchables. <coughs> untouchables are locked into an occupational prison system without walls. 
I have a friend born in India in the Sweet Sweeper caste. That's one of the untouchable castes. If he stayed in India, all the society would allow him to do is sweep streets all his life. Here in Southern California, he became a professor of accounting at USC and a Christian. Well, it was a rat catcher caste and a latrine cleaner caste. So, as William Carey and others learned language after language of India, they learned a language called Sanskrit. Sanskrit is to India what Latin is to Western civilization. It's a language that is no longer spoken in the street, but just like Latin has a significant body of literature preserved in it. Learning Sanskrit, the missionaries began to read the Vedas. And some of the Vedas are a thousand years old. Some things were written in the Vedas 2,000 years. And in the Vedas, you see the proliferation of these things that are so opposite to biblical ethic. But when they began to read the older, older, older Vedic literature, they were going back to things written apparently by Job-like persons as far back as the days of Moses, even as far back as the time of Abraham. And in the oldest Vedic literature, they found prophecies, things that were written that were inspired from a pure source than the later Vedic writings. They found, for example, an ancient Vedic prophecy that said, somewhere in the world there's an upside-down tree. Now, what can cause a tree to be upside-down besides a tornado, a hurricane, or a bulldozer? This is a tree that is upside-down because it is rooted in heaven and it grows down toward the earth instead of up from the earth. It spreads its branches out above the earth in every possible direction, yielding fruit for all mankind. It goes on to say the trunk of the upside-down tree will be gashed, and the sap that bleeds from the wound and the side of the upside-down tree is for the healing of mankind. Rooted in heaven, nourishing fruit from the branches, healing sap from a wound, that's a very strange metaphor. In spite of its strangeness, fellow Christian, does it remind you of someone you know and love? Think of the privilege of helping Hindus in India or in Nepal to understand the significance of that ancient Vedic metaphor. And uh, a man heard me say this in a meeting recently. He said, Don, I feel so rebuked. I said, why? He said, I was working in India and I was walking along a pathway with some Hindu friends, and there was a wall on one side of the pathway with ceramic tiles glued on it, and I noticed that every third or fourth or fifth tile showed an upside-down tree. I made a joke of it, said, whoever glued these tiles on the wall must have been on something. <laughs> Didn't know he was gluing them upside down. If only I had asked them about it, I could have found what I wanted as a Christian to find some way to introduce the gospel of Jesus Christ to my Hindu friends. Another man said, I was a tourist in India, went into a gift shop, saw a great big tapestry hanging from the wall with a tree upside down. I was tempted to say to the owner, don't you realize your employees have put this thing upside down? I'm glad I didn't. Almost bought it. I said, did you look to see if there was a gash in the side? No, he said, it didn't look that close. So it's there. And now... More and more people in India are turning in faith to Jesus. And where do you suppose the greatest response would be? Among the Aryans on their pedestal of privilege or among the Dravidians, especially the Dalits, the lowest of the low? By Hindu priests that they are subhuman scum, unworthy even to be touched by a genuine human being. I mean, I'm told that a Hindu doctor in India, unless he's accepted some influence from outside of the Hindu cultural context, will refuse to treat an untouchable person. If he has to touch him in order to heal him, he'll just leave him for someone else or just let him die, rather than defile his high-caste fingers by touching an untouchable person. Well, more and more people are turning to the Lord because Dalits are learning through the gospel of Jesus that they are created in whose image? in the image of God. And who cared enough for them to die to atone for their sin? God incarnate in the person of Jesus and they're learning that they're invited by repentance and faith in him to enjoy not some 
down there in the mud kind of citizenship, but full citizenship in the most glorious kingdom will ever be, the kingdom of God. Does that sound like good news? It is indeed. Hundreds of house churches are opening the doors for the first time. Latrine cleaners, garbage collectors, and street sweepers are thronging to the Lord. And every now and then a high caste Hindu also becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know what that means for him or her. A high caste person who becomes a Christian tumbles down the social scale even lower than the deletes and becomes an outcast, which means zero recognition. When you hear of persecution of Christians in India, who do you suppose is doing the persecuting? High caste Hindus are the ones who set fire to the vehicle of an Australian missionary and burned him and his sons alive. Low caste Hindus were trying to get there to put the flames out. So, these are things you can pray about in India. All right. Cultural compasses in China and in India and a great response to the gospel spreading. What about Stone Age tribes hidden away in remote jungles? Could you expect to find, especially if they're cannibals and headhunters, not just one or the other, but both? Anything that would be there to point them to Jesus in terms that would be especially meaningful to them, if not to anyone else in the world. In 1962, my first wife, Carol Joy, who's with the Lord, the Carol I introduced to you at the beginning of this message is Carol Joyce. My first wife was Carol Joy, and she is with the Lord. And three and a half years ago, Carol Joy and I were married and are partners in ministry now. But it was in 1962, Carol Joy and I sailed across the Pacific to Australia, turned right, and headed to a great big island called New Guinea. It's 1,500 miles long. That's like the distance from Carpinteria almost to New Orleans. And it's the home of a 1,000 tribes speaking a 1,000 languages. Almost one out of every seven languages spoken on earth are spoken in New Guinea. And when we arrived, all our colleagues of a mission called World Team, please say World Team. World Team. A mission that is sending teams of young men and women out to do career ministry, planting churches where none exist. They were up in the mountains. In the mountains of New Guinea, it was healthy. It was like a Garden of Eden. The temperatures were pleasant a mile or so above sea level. There wasn't even any malaria there. And you could plant western vegetables. Now the tribes that lived in those mountains were at war. You might see arrows flashing past the windows of your house, but aside from that, it's, it's a Garden of Eden. And, and the tribes were at war among themselves, but very welcoming to the missionaries. And so our colleagues said, as Carol and I arrived there with our little baby son Stephen, next picture, there's... Carol, there's little Stephen, less than a year old at the time. There's one of the mountain tribesmen. Just arrived in that missionary aircraft on an airstrip, gouged out of a mountain slope. And the missionaries said, Don and Carol, welcome. And by the way, there's lots of work to be done here in the mountains. You're welcome to join us. But we do let, need to let you know a new tribe has been discovered in the swamps down in the south. Swamps that extend over 30,000 square miles drenched with 22 feet of rainfall a year. And a new tribe had been discovered in those swamps, believed to be called the Sawi, believed to be about 3,000 people that have never heard of judges, jails, policemen, or law courts. They were practicing cannibals and headhunters, not extras for a Tarzan movie, but the real thing. And they said that tribe is in the area of responsibility assigned to our mission called World Team. And you don't have to go there because there's lots of work to do up here. But if you think God wants you to go where no one has ever heard the name of Jesus before, that would be that kind of a situation. It may not be the ends of the earth, but you can probably see it from there. <laughs> so I was praying and saying, Lord, I want to serve you where you want me to serve you. Where is it to be? In the mountains, I mean, mountain climbing is my summer hobby. I still climb 14,000-foot peaks in the high Sierras or in Colorado. I've bagged 26, no repeats. They hiked them all. And there I was with mountains higher than anything in the Rockies, higher than the high Sierras. The highest peak is 16,500 feet, capped with ice, even though it's near the equator. And so the, the mountains were drawing to me, but I was seeking God's will. 
And the Spirit of God was whispering to my heart, saying, Don, I want you to go to that newly discovered tribe called Asawi. They're the people I prepared for you to bear witness for me among. I know they're cannibals. I know they're hindrances. Don't worry about that. I've taken care of everything. They'll welcome you. I have a ministry match made in heaven waiting for you, but you have to go among them to find it. I said, Lord, I hear you whispering your reassurance to my heart, but Carol is a pastor's daughter from Cincinnati, Ohio. She's been on a camping trip or two. <laughs> Never experienced anything like that. Can I expect her to join me to go into a, an environment like that with a little baby boy, little Stephen, in her arms? Will she? Would that be fair? Lord, you have to give her your own personal assurance because I couldn't force her to go against her will. And God did exactly that. Carol came to me and said, Don, I keep thinking about the Sawi. I can't get the name of that tribe out of my mind. It's like it's in my heart. Do you think we should go there? And I said, yes. And we agreed. Send us to the Sawi. Everybody said, are you sure? I said, yes, it's okay. We want to go. Well, we went down there, left Carol and Stephen in a safe place. I went in first among the Sawi to test their attitudes. And it turned out for a couple of years they'd been hearing positive reports about tall, pale, sickly-looking beings called Tuans. That means European types. And all the reports about Tuans, thank God, were positive. The report said no one's ever heard of a Tuan hurting anyone. Apparently they never war with each other. They didn't know the war in South Vietnam was raging at that very time. And the reports also said wherever Tuans go, they bring obat, which means medicine, and garam, which means salt, steel, tools, nylon, fish line, fish hooks, amazing technology the Sawi people had never heard of before. So hearing all these positive reports about Tuans, the Sawi began to say wistfully to other tribes that lived a little closer to civilization, are there any spare Tuans around? We think we'd like to welcome one. Only to have the other tribes say nastily, a two-on live among you. Who do you think you are? Don't you realize these two-ons are a scarce commodity? There's not enough for every, every tribe to have one, let alone every village. And they're choosy about where they live and who they live among. Don't get your hopes up, you saw. You're the worst of all the tribes. You know that. You're wretched, awful, treacherous people. You'll never be favored by the presence of one of these rare beings. <laughs> Hearing these insulting comments from their enemies, the Sawi people were saying wistfully, Perhaps they're right. I guess we're no one special. We'll probably never be favored by a Tuan coming to live among us. But they also said, just in case, just in case someday, somewhere, there's a Tuan who finds out that we live here, decides he wants to come and live among us. And if he doesn't allow the anti-Sawi propaganda to, to turn him away from us, when we find out that Tuan has chosen us, we'll let him know and know on certain terms. We choose him. He'll be our Tuan. We'll be his tribe. Well, guess which sort of a bloke you're looking at here. I'm a Tuan. My wife, Carol Anyonya, a female Tuan. We even had a little baby Tuan, little Stephen. So when I went among the Sawi, made that first contact with them, they looked me up and down and realized I was one of these strange beings they'd been hearing about. And I used sign language to indicate I wanted the help to build a house, pointed a little bit of high ground that might be high enough not to be covered by water in the monsoon season. They understood the sign language. Suddenly they began shouting for joy. I realized later they were saying, he's a two-on and he wants to live among us. He wants to help build a house. This is great. Our dream is about to re be realized. So I handed out some steel tools. They took them, went out in the jungle, gathered the materials, built a little 400-square-foot house with a thatched roof because it looked like a little matchbox beneath the towering jungle walls and had a thatched roof. I nicknamed it our thatch box. <laughs> this would be the first home that Carol and I would have to ourselves. We've been married for two years, been staying in other people's homes while we're on deputation, raising support for our work with World Team. This would be our house. Well, we had to share it with a few little lizards and creepy crawlies. Actually, the lizards were kind of like a help to us because there was one that hid behind a picture I hung on the wall. You could see his tail hanging down. And I realized as soon as we went to bed, it came up from behind the picture, went all through the house, eating cockroaches and mosquitoes. So he said, this guy's our ally. We like him. <laughs> Didn't give him a name, but he was a friend. He just was there for years. And was getting kind of fat. <laughs> so, and we had our mosquito nets, of course. And uh, took anti-malaria medicine and boiled our water before we drank it. 
we got accustomed to life. And uh, when the house was finished, I thanked them for helping me build it. Said, I'm using sign language. I'm going to fetch my wife and son, and I'll return with them in three days' time to reside among you in this little house you've so kindly helped me build. Did they understand my sign language? Came back three days later, and there were 400 of them massed on the riverbank, waiting to see if I'd keep my promise and return with my family. We climbed up out of the dugout canoe onto the shore among them. They closed in all around us so tightly we could hardly move, and their eyes were gleaming with excitement. And I saw all the men were holding weapons and had war paint on. <laughs> I thought, what's the meaning of the weapons and the war paint? Are we invited to dinner or? <laughs> yes. They were so quiet. They were waiting for a signal. Someone shouted the signal, Asa! And at that signal, they all began leaping in the air, shouting for joy, brandishing their weapons, and pounding on their drums. And they began to dance around us, escorting us away from the river up to the front steps, the little thatch box. We got there. They motioned to us, climb the steps. We did. We went in. I closed the door behind us, and they began pounding on the drums again and dancing around the house all night long. <laughs> all the next day, all the second night, all the second day, and all the third night. Two days and three nights of celebration. We were welcome. <laughs> and they wore the weapons on the war paint not to threaten us or intimidate us, but in much the same way that a military honor guard at Dulles International Airport wears military uniforms and holds bayonets welcoming a special guest from another nation. It was their way of saying, welcome, Don and Carol, little Stephen, to our world. It may be crazy, but it's where we live. After that first night, believe me, we slept in spite of the thunder of the drums right outside the walls. And not, no glass on the windows, just green plastic fly screen. But in the morning, after breakfast, I said, Honey, I've got to learn their language as quickly as possible. We're welcome now. What if there's some misunderstanding? If I don't know the language, who knows what might happen? So I went down by the river, was a little quieter, and made my first attempt to learn the Sawi language with no grammar to study, no dictionary, and no bilingual language helper. How to learn a language in a situation like that? I'll tell you what you have to do. You have to resort to the finger-pointing method. I began by pointing at a man. They looked at me curiously. One of them said, Didig. I wrote down, Didig means man. Then I pointed at a woman, and they said, Didig. <laughs> I thought, perhaps it means person without regard to gender. Crossed out man, wrote person. Then I pointed at a dog, and they said, Didig. <laughs> <coughs> I pointed at a house, tree, canoe, paddle the river. No matter what I pointed at, they kept saying, dee-dee, 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 dee-dee. But then I was saying, Lord, have you led me halfway around the world to learn a language that has only one word? <laughs> Finally, I realized what dee meant. Finger. <laughs> it is not Sawe body language to point with one finger unless you're placing a curse upon someone or something. Thank God they were giving their two on the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't placing curses on them. If they'd drawn that conclusion, I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. And they were probably muttering, this man is so dense, he keeps holding up his finger. We keep telling the word, he just keeps asking us to repeat it. Do we have to stand here all day saying nothing but finger, 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 finger? What's the point? Are all two-ons as dense as this one that we get the dumbest one that was left over? Later, I found I had to learn to point with my lips. In our culture, you know what that's asking for? And this was just the beginning of our cross-cultural communication voyage among the Sawi people. Fast forward several months, I gained enough fluency. I was able to begin explaining to them about God, whom I called Nyalkadon, the greatest good spirit. I explained about creation and the creation of man in the image of God, made for fellowship with him. Then I described the fall of man and God's response, sending a redeemer named Jesus, born among the Jewish people, growing up among them, working miracles, selecting his disciples. And one day I narrated for a group of Sawi men for the first time, the story of one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, turning against his friend and master, Jesus, and betraying him with a kiss to be led away and slain. I noticed they were paying close attention to the story of treachery. But when I described Judas's use of a kiss as an instrument of betrayal, they couldn't restrain themselves. They burst forth cheering for Judas. 
exclaiming, oh, Don, that man named Judas, the one who used a kiss as a means of betraying someone, he's the sort of man we call a tareduan, a master of treachery. Tell us more about Judas. He's the sort of man any one of us would be proud to promise a daughter to in marriage. Another one chimed in saying, doing that is what we call tui asanaiman, using gestures of friendship to fatten the victim for an unsuspected slaughter. Someone else said, we never thought of kissing our victims at the moment of truth. Judas has done us one better. That was not the response I was expecting. <laughs> that response chilled me and caused me to pray earnestly as I sat there among them saying, help, Lord, I need a gift of wisdom. You all know what the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him take a further course in seminary. <laughs> what does it urge? First and foremost, let him ask of God. And believe me, I was asking and asking of God. What sort of an answer could I expect? Warfare broke out. Three entire villages of Sawi people wanted to live close to the Tuan and the Nyonya, and they built new villages. There was one old abandoned village there. People that had lived there came back, renewed that village. Two more villages came. And it was great to have so many extra hundreds of people that Carol, a registered nurse, could minister to using nursing skills. She probably saved an average of one life a day for several years. Because soon there were flotillas of canoes coming with sick people from other tribes. And she treated them. And I took medicine with me when I went out upriver, downriver, through the jungle to other villages. So many people had malaria and other tropical diseases. And they appreciated that. But two of these villages had been at war before they relocated to live close to us. And they were not able to forget their unsettled grievances. And the warfare broke out and raged. And I wanted to be a peacemaker, pleading with them, please make peace. And they kept saying, you keep asking us to make peace as if that should be an easy thing to achieve. You don't realize what you're asking. Making peace is probably a simple thing for you two ones, especially since you never war with each other. But it's not that way for us. And when I found out they honored specialists in treachery as heroes, I thought this makes sense. If each side knows the other side's potential to use something like a peace offer as a setup for a greater slaughter later on, of course, you have difficulty making peace. Making peace requires some basis for mutual trust, and how can you have that in this kind of a cultural context? I actually came to the conclusion God had called us to serve him in the midst of a culture that was utterly devoid of any mechanism for making peace, but I was wrong. When they said it wasn't easy, that did not mean it was impossible. There was a way. If a father in one of two warring Sawi villages genuinely wanted to make peace, he could do so if he was willing to make a sacrifice so great everyone would know that's a sacrifice an insincere man couldn't make, couldn't summon the resolve for. And what was that? A father had to be willing to take one of his own children and give that child as a peace child to a father in the enemy village. If a man was willing to do that, he was demonstrating genuineness and providing a basis for mutual trust. A sacrifice as great as that was a sacrifice no one could be so crass as to invalidate later by renewing hostilities. And I saw a Sawi father who was blessed with only one child, given only child as a peace child. Even the Sawi were surprised because always in living memory the father gave a Peace child was a father blessed with only one child, several children, never a father of an only child. It was a first. And I saw the peace made. They celebrated peace. It was like there'd never been any hostility. And I said, what is this? A father giving a son, an only son at that, to his enemies for the purpose of reconciliation. Why is there something familiar about this? <laughs> and then I realized, I realized God had heard my prayer and prepared that amazing answer. I was able to proclaim Jesus as the Tarapim Kadon, the greatest peace child given by Nava Kadon, the greatest father, to establish the Torkon Ah Kadon, the greatest peace. They listened with increasing interest, and they said, do you mean to tell us the one Judas betrayed with that kiss was a peace child? I said, yes. Oh, you didn't tell us that. He's the most evil person we could imagine. Who would betray? <laughs> Judas's rating slipped. 
Jesus was unveiled among the Sawi as the perfect personal fulfiller of their own uniquely Sawi peace-tale custom. So I thought, if God had an answer for me like this, there may be answers awaiting discovery in other cultures. And I was launched into what became decades of research and began to write the results of the research in a book called Peace Child with a DVD in which a thousand Sawi men, women, and children reenact the story themselves, showing you how they did war and treachery and how a father gave a son as a peace child. And I learned that a tribe up in the mountains that killed two of my dear friends had places of refuge. Cannibals were the place of refuge. That's a requirement of Old Testament law, isn't it? Written on the hearts of people that never heard of Moses or the Jewish cities of refuge. And I was launched into what became decades of study, and I wrote Lords of the Earth about the tribe that had places of refuge, and then eternity in their hearts. 28 case histories of these amazing things that God has seeded out there on the other side of those frontiers to facilitate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ when finally faithful messengers arrive with that so important message. So, what is this thing we call missions? You know what millions of Christians think missions is? Something God invented to keep hyperactive believers occupied out of everyone else's hair. Others would say missions is only for Christians who are so holy they can read at night without bed lamps. The light of their halo suffices. <laughs> what is it really, men and women? God prepared messengers from fellowships like this one, bringing the God-prepared message to guess which kind of people out there? God-prepared people. It's our privilege. And God has prepared the gospel for all peoples on earth, has been preparing all peoples on earth for the gospel. So the means to help people understand, the ring, hear the ring of truth in this message is already there, but we have to bring the message that corresponds, the only message in the world that fits the things that God has placed there in advance. Well, after I'd done all this research and written the first three books showing about these amazing cultural compasses, sometimes I call them redemptive analogies, I went on to study Islam to see what is there in the life of Muhammad, the teachings in the Quran and in the Hadith that might serve the same sort of purpose. And it was kind of a surprise to find out that Islam is designed from its inception to be the only thing in the world that cannot be approached in this strategy. Why? Because Muhammad denied the crucifixion of our Lord. And the crucifixion of our Lord is what you would use any of these special things to draw people to, isn't it? The gash in the side of the upside-down tree points to the crucifixion. A father offering a son. All of these things. So that is the reason, I believe, why Islam is the greatest challenge for the church. Does it mean that Muslims are unreachable? No, it doesn't. It just means it requires a special, different kind of study and approach. And that's what I've sought to explain in a fourth book called Secrets of the Quran. Well, look, I would love to keep you here till 4 o'clock this afternoon and regale you with more and more examples and more and more insights that I've been gaining and collecting for decades. But your calls, culture calls for this message to end a few minutes ago. So I have to honor your culture and stop teaching. But guess what? This church, Reality Church, is sponsoring a course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And it's one lesson a week for 15 weeks, and I am one of the 15 lecturers on Tuesday evening right here. They're going to give me two hours to teach you if you will be here. And it's, you know, you're going to take the course and get credit for it if you register. Well, it's too late for that, but it's going to be offered again sometime. And if you get a taste of it on Tuesday evening, you may decide you want to stand in line next time it's offered and register right up front and take the whole course. So in the interest of increasing the attendance in future Perspectives courses, they've given me permission to invite you back Tuesday evening at 6.30, and they're going to give me two hours. I'm a marathon-type teacher. You probably guessed that by now. <laughs> Looking for marathon-type learners. Be here if you can come back. But if you can't get, come back Tuesday, you're going to go into labor, get married or whatever. See Carol and me after the worship is finished at the resource table out there and we will show you resources that can give you so much more information about God's heart for mankind and this wonderful way of enabling people 
to hear the ring of truth and the message of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done in the world. Thank you for calling us to be your servants. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in China and in India and among people like the Sawi. Lord, there are other frontiers that need to be crossed so that there will be some from every language, nation, people, and tribe sharing citizenship with us in your glorious kingdom forever. Help us, Lord, to do what you want us to do. Reach all the peoples with the gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen.